Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. On today's show, we are going to be talking about the latest Supreme Court developments. This includes the attempt by the administration to let the trans-military ban go into effect and a new sexual orientation workplace discrimination case out of West Virginia. Next, we will talk about the mind-boggling ruling from a reliably right-wing activist judge in Texas who ruled that Obamacare was unconstitutional, placing health care insurance for thousands of LGBT people at risk. Finally, we will discuss a case brought by a student against his high school alleging intentional infliction of emotional distress for anti-LGBT animus and subjecting him to conversion therapy. With us is New York Law School professor Art Leonard, chief editor of Legal's LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest LGBT legal developments here and abroad. Let's dig in. Hi, Art. Hi. How you doing? Okay. We are recording from New York Law School in Art's office, and we're just going to give a little disclaimer that it's quite noisy because Art tells me they're building a street outside. Yes, Worth Street was... Severely damaged when a construction crane was blown over in a gale. And this is going oh. back quite a while. In fact, someone was killed when the crane fell, oh and God. it also damaged the facade of the law school. But it injured all kinds of stuff under the street, oh. pipes and electrical connections and water and steam and all kinds of stuff. So this street has been dug up and is now in the process of reconstruction. And if it's picked up by our recording device here, you're going to hear dump trucks and <laughs> trucks backing up and beeping and all kinds of as stuff. As long as a crane doesn't fall on our heads, I yes. think I'll be fine. I don't think there are any cranes out there. <laughs> all right, so let's get to the meat and potatoes here. On the last episode, we discussed the DOJ's attempt to get the Supreme Court to review three preliminary federal district court rulings that have kept the Trump administration from implementing its discriminatory plan to prevent trans troops from serving in the U.S. Armed Services. We have new filings in response to these cert petitions to discuss now from the groups that are representing the transgender service members. And in addition, though this happened in January, we do have the ruling from the D.C. Circuit that reversed a favorable lower court ruling and dissolved a preliminary injunction that was put in place by the lower court. So, Art, let's talk about where we stand with respect to the um, transgender military ban cases and the district, uh, the D.C. Circuit ruling. Okay, well, first we have to add, uh, because by the time people listen to this podcast, we may know a lot more, that uh, we are recording this on uh, Friday morning, January 11th, as the Supreme Court is conferencing. It's happening now. It's happening right now as we're recording this uh, on both the transgender military cases and the Title VII cases involving sexual orientation and gender identity. So uh, this news may be a little out of date. But at any rate, I I think the first thing to report is that as a result of the D.C. Circuit reversing the trial court in the transgender military case from the D.C. District Court, uh, the Solicitor General later that day, working real fast, sent a letter to the Supreme Court Mm. saying, okay, we are no longer asking you to grant that cert petition from this case. What we're asking you to do is hold it for now in case the plaintiffs below file a motion for rehearing on bank. Mm. Because 
they're likely to do so. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this was just a three-judge panel, and the D.C. Circuit has uh, a lot of people who might be very uh, sympathetic to the transgender side on this issue. Yeah. Uh, so the uh, the the uh, Solicitor General said, just hold on. Uh, we would be happy for you to grant our motion <laughs> to... Uh, uh, to stay the preliminary injunction, but in fact that's moot because the D.C. Circuit has now said it's dissolved Wow! and has sent the case back. And I think what people have to understand about that is it sent the case back for reconsideration by the district court. Uh, it didn't say that the district court cannot issue a preliminary injunction. It just said that uh, the district court was clearly mistaken in labeling uh, Secretary Mattis's version of the ban, which Trump accepted in February of uh, 2018, mm -hmm. uh, it was clearly erroneous in characterizing it as exactly the same, wow. or essentially the same as what Trump had uh, promulgated the previous summer, the summer of 2017. Right. Uh, that was, in the tweet, that was just a complete across the board, transgender people may not serve in any capacity in the U.S. military. That's right. what Trump said in his tweet. And you could tell that he didn't consult with any experts because he wouldn't have put it that way if he consulted with experts. They would have told him, you can't say it that way. Uh, and then he put out a memorandum in August 2017, drafted for him, of course, by White House staff, uh, because he doesn't write anything, I'm sure, except maybe his tweets. Or read anything, I'm sure. Yeah, well, he... Teleprompter the other night. We're, we're told he can read uh, three-by-five cards that people put, you know, saying, like, uh, don't congratulate when he called up Putin to congratulate him on his... <laughs> Well, we're, he we're reads wondering. them. He doesn't internalize yes. them. And right. well, yeah, but we, we saw them. we saw this week in his first White House speech to the nation that he can read a teleprompter. You saw? I didn't watch it. No, I watched it on YouTube after the fact. <laughs> I was going to watch. It. I watched the Democratic response. Yes, but uh, getting back to the, <laughs> right. to, the to, to the subject matter uh, that we're talking about. Uh, so uh, the court said, basically, uh, taking at face value the allegations in the uh, motion to dissolve the injunction filed by the uh, Justice Department, taking that at face value, he said, uh, if we assume all of that to be true, although they didn't put it exactly in those words, they treated it as if they were assuming it to be true, that Mattis appointed a new panel of experts, that they studied the problem afresh, and that based on uh, objective scientific analysis, they recommended to him excluding certain transgender people and allowing right. other transgender people to serve. And therefore, they said, this looks like military judgment that's entitled to deference. So in remanding it to the district court, we're telling the district court uh, to consider uh, whether this is entitled to deference, not based on the idea that Trump just unilaterally thought it up as a political thing, uh, but that it might have something behind it. The problem there is, of course, that the Defense uh, Department and the Justice Department have been stonewalling on uh, revealing the identity of the people involved in doing this or the basis for their conclusions uh, and so forth. So is it likely the district court, the district court will could, put more pressure on them to reveal the sources think, if I they want I think the district court difference. could. Uh, we're in this strange situation because the D.C. Circuit having reverse the district court's refusal to dissolve the preliminary injunction, Right. that preliminary injunction is no longer in effect. But there are preliminary injunctions in effect from federal district courts in Baltimore, 
Seattle and Riverside, California. Right. So there are three preliminary injunctions still in effect. So the ban is still not the ban, in effect, the and ban that is was still important not in for effect. people to know. And, and this is the subject of intense debating that took place within the past few days, because after uh, the D.C. Circuit ruling, the Solicitor General sent a letter and filed a brief, and then the uh, respondents, of course, the uh, representatives of the plaintiffs, you can right. bet that those lawyers were spent a pretty intense weekend right? because the ruling came out on Friday, yeah, yeah. Uh, Friday morning. We know some of them. Uh, so the, the lawyers were all busy over the weekend putting together their responses and arguments, and the Supreme Court was deluged this week from all the legal teams with letters and briefs wow. arguing about what this means and arguing about whether it changes the situation and arguing about whether the uh, Solicitor General is has any basis for saying there's some kind of emergency here that requires this to be decided now. Mm -hmm. uh, the Solicitor General, we discussed in last month's podcast, the petitions that the Solicitor General filed. Well, in mid-December, December 13th, he filed motions with the Supreme Court in all these cases saying, look, if you don't grant our petitions, will you please grant our motion to either stay the preliminary injunctions pending a decision mm -hmm. on whether to grant cert or, or uh, alternatively, will you narrow them? And in the motions, in the uh, memoranda in support of the motions, uh, they did a major job on the controversy about nationwide injunctions issued by federal district judges. There is an argument that has some intellectual respectability that that violates the case and controversy provision of the Constitution because they say only the plaintiff in the case has standing to invoke the protection of the court. They've been arguing this all along. Mm -hmm. Right. So that only the plaintiffs in these four cases should be covered by any preliminary injunction that's issued. It shouldn't be nationwide. It shouldn't affect the ability to implement the policy as to anyone else. That's their argument. And, of course, that argument is sharply countered in the papers that are filed by the uh, attorneys for the, for the plaintiffs in these cases who say that uh, we're attacking this policy on its face, not just as applied to these people. Right. And uh, that if the policy is likely unconstitutional with respect to these plaintiffs, it's unconstitutional with respect to everybody right. who, who is transgender. So there's quite an argument going on. And this is intended to evoke a re reaction from certain members of the court who have in recent cases and recent uh, dissents from denials of cert uh, sp sp uh, put in question the appropriateness of allowing single federal district judge to enjoin the federal government nationwide mm. from applying a policy. And this cuts in, in different directions because yeah. back during the Obama administration, there were plenty of Democrats, liberals who were complaining about federal Talk, district uh, judges yeah. enjoining, giving nationwide injunctions against Obama administration policies. So the question of whether a single district judge should be able to do that or whether perhaps it should be reserved to the court of appeals level, mm -hmm. somehow, uh, some kind of procedure to do that, or whether it's just not appropriate to allow it. Uh, so they're putting that question in front of the court and wow. saying that's one of the issues here on these motions. And in the course of that argument, they said there had been at least 25 nationwide injunctions issued by federal district judges <laughs> against Trump administration actions. Hell yes. Uh, I mean, if he wants to If govern, he declares this emergency right. order on the wall, you can expect one more. Well, well, the issue is if he wants to usurp the function of the legislative branch by ruling by executive order, 
with excessive broadness and getting into policy issues without support from legislation, uh, well, then the response of the federal district courts is to protect the legislature's priorities, the legislature's For prerogatives. <laughs> yes, it's it's very interesting to see this, and it, it blends over into the next uh, case that we're going to be talking about. But just to keep people up to date with what's happening, so today the Supreme Court is deciding whether to uh, grant a petition in the Karnowski case from Seattle, mm-hmm. in the Stockman case from Riverside, uh, probably not in the Jane Doe case from D.C. because the Solicitor General has said, please hold this, yeah. don't decide this, because it may be moot, okay. this one. Uh, they also have before them the motions, okay. which uh, the Solicitor General asked them to decide concurrently with the petitions. Wow. Whether they will, we don't know. Okay. Uh, whether the deluge of paper that they received this week will de- determine for them that they have to wait to process all this till their next conference. Right. And, and does that wait, push it back that until may, the next that term? That may. It has been suggested that if the government waives its right to file replies to the respondents' still. replies, they might still be able to fit it in by the end of April. But that depends on how many cert grants they make today, uh, how many cert grants they make on the 18th, Yeah. which is the 18th would probably be the absolutely last date on which a cert grant could be argued, uh, unless they're going to add argument days in May. Yeah. Because right now their last argument date on the calendar is April 24th. Okay. Uh, and also to remind people that today they have relisted for consideration the three Title VII cases. That's uh, Bostock from the 11th Circuit and Zarda, Altitude Express from the 2nd Circuit on sexual orientation claims under Title VII. And uh, the Harris Funeral Homes case from the 6th Circuit on gender identity claims. And we now have, and we'll just discuss very briefly, a new cert petition that was uh, filed on December 14th. Uh, This is the Kerr petition, which I think is extremely unlikely to be granted, but it also tries to put into play uh, the question, which is not covered by any of the other cert petitions directly, of whether Title IX covers sexual orientation discrimination claims by students against schools that get federal money. Uh, so uh, this is Lisa Marie Kerr, who uh, represent, is representing herself pro se on the Supreme Court petition. Okay. But that is not as totally weird as it sounds, because they get lots of pro se petitions, so they're usually from indigent Prison. criminal defendants yeah. and prisoners. prisoners. In her case, she is a lawyer who practiced for several years. And after her partner died, she decided she wanted to devote herself to a different kind of public service, go back to school, get a teaching certificate, and become a public school teacher. Mm. So she enrolled at uh, Marshall University in West Virginia, which has a two-year master's program in education seeking teacher certification. And she says in her cert petition that basically the state of West Virginia has ceded the uh, authority to issue teacher certifications to the schools in the state that have education programs. Uh, so the university is actually serving a state function in doing this. Mm. Uh, so she enrolled in the university. She said she was getting great grades. She was getting good observations in her student teaching and everything else. And then she mentioned to an adjunct professor who was teaching one of her courses that she was a lesbian. And she said everything turned around wow. at that point. It, it seems Marshall University, maybe it's not in writing anywhere, but she says de facto they have a policy that gay people will not be certified to be public school teachers by Marshall University. And uh, she was so upset 
by the way they responded to the fact that she was a lesbian that she ended up not completing her student teaching assignment that semester <laughs> and they refused to award her a certificate so she's filed suit against them yeah uh, but the problem is the case got bogged down in all kinds of weird stuff uh, at, at the time she filed the suit in 2014 uh, people were not filing sexual orientation claims of this sort under Title IX. Yeah. So she filed an equal protection claim. Uh, but she also alleged uh, a violation of the Fair Labor Standards Act and various tort claims and all kinds of stuff. And she ended up getting dif dismissed by a federal magistrate. Uh, Kerr appealed to the Fourth Circuit, which affirmed the district court's decision uh, in a published opinion from 2016, her versus Marshall University Board of Governors, uh, but she did not file a petition for cert with the Supreme Court at that time for some reason. What she did was instead, by 2016, what had happened was case law under Title IX had been developing yeah. in cases involving both transgender and gay students. Gay cases tend to be bullying and harassment cases. The transgender cases tended to be bathroom access cases. Right. But uh, more and more courts were recognizing that you could bring sexual orientation or gender identity claims under the sex discrimination ban of Title IX. So she went back and she filed a new complaint in a district court, a different, uh, actually the same court because there's only one federal district in West Virginia. So she files a different complaint premised on Title IX. Yeah. And she files a motion to file an amended complaint in her original case, which she had lost in the Fourth Circuit. Mm. And... Uh, Geez, good thing she was a lawyer. Well, bad thing because, uh, I mean, the, the Fourth Circuit did not like this and the district yeah, judge did not well. like this. They said, you've lost already. You can't relitigate this case. So the Fourth Circuit uh, affirmed the district court's refusal to allow her to file the amended complaint mm -hmm. and uh, affirmed the judgment against her on the new case. Yeah. And now she's filed her cert petition. And uh, her cert petition focuses in part, of course, on all the procedural stuff. She She's also trying to get the court in this case to take up the, the Title IX question. Yeah. Uh, and also to take up the immunity idea. Uh, she's, she's got a whole stew of issues in there. But my gut reaction is that the Supreme Court does not take cases that have all kinds of procedural complications. They yeah. want cases that They're very clean. neatly, yeah. cleanly present. And when they, if they grant cert in such a case and then they start reading the merits briefs and they discover that there are all kinds of procedural problems, they will usually dismiss cert as improvidently granted. Yeah. Uh, because it would require them to decide all kinds of issues they don't want to deal with uh, to get to the merits of the case. So I don't think she's going to get very far with this, but it means that there is another cert petition on file. And just to give people the count, as of today, before we hear the results of today's uh, conference, which uh, cert grants frequently get announced on Friday afternoon, but they wait until the following Monday for the cert denials, and sometimes they add more cert grants. Okay. But right now, we have three Title VII cert petitions on file being discussed today. We have two Title IX cert petitions on file that aren't being discussed yet uh, because uh, the curve is too recent, so the file isn't complete, although the Marshall University has already filed a uh, paper with the court signifying that they're not going to file a, a brief in opposition. <laughs> they're so confident this is going to be wow. dismissed. Wow, all right. Uh, the Boyerton Area School District case, uh, which is an right. Alliance Defending Freedom case, uh, time to reply 
has been extended to January 22. Okay, so, so that won't be considered big. soon. Uh, then we have the three transgender military cases. Then we have two cases involving First Amendment defenses to public accommodations claims okay. where cert petitions have been filed. Uh, one is Cervelli against Aloha Bed and Breakfast from the Hawaii Good Supreme Court. from Hawaii. Uh, from Hawaii. Uh, and then Klein against Oregon Bureau of Labor and Industries, which is a wedding cake case. Mm -hmm. uh, so that petition was filed on October 26th. Uh, and the time for the Solicitor General of Oregon to respond has been extended to January 25th. Uh -huh. So, uh, and the time in the Cervelli case has been extended to February 1. So those will probably be discussed by the court sometime in February, which means if they're granted, they won't be argued till next term. Got it. But just to keep people up to date. I mean, my God. We have a lot of stuff going on at the yeah. Supreme Court now. Wow. Okay, so let's wrap up this segment. And then, as we mentioned, there's a little bit of a tie-in to what we were talking about with respect to injunctions and federal district court judges going sometimes, you know, ruling in ways that we like and sometimes ruling in ways that are just plain maddening. Um, let's go ahead and take a break and then we'll come back and talk about a case out of Texas. Okay, we're back. Certainly at this point, all of us have heard reports about the district court ruling declaring Obamacare unconstitutional. Uh, the Affordable Care Act has, of course, made health care coverage a reality for many LGBT people and their families, many for the first time ever. It has had a tremendous impact on people living with HIV and transgender people who were denied coverage. The ACA, the ACA provides protections from discrimination as well. So we're going to talk about the decision and the potential impact on LGBTQ people and the conservative activist judge at the center of it all. Art, talk to us about this. Oh. Case. So we're talking about U.S. District Judge Reed O'Connor. And yep. people who closely follow LGBT law know that uh, Judge O'Connor is no fan of LGBT rights. In fact, he issued a nationwide injunction back during the Obama administration prohibiting the enforcement of Title IX by the federal government uh, in support of claims by transgender students for restroom access. Yeah. Uh, which sort of stymied the education department from filing new cases at that point. Uh, while well, that was on appeal, and I think it's it's no longer on appeal because the Trump administration Got signaled the to the guidance. court that we're no longer do, going to enforce it. Right. Uh, so, but that that doesn't stop courts from cases brought by individuals because there is a private right of action that's been found by the courts. It's not spelled out in the statute, but there's a private right of action under Title IX. So students and their parents can bring their own cases. And we certainly have reported on lots of those recently in law notes. Right. Uh, so in this case, uh, the uh, Attorney General of Texas, in league with uh, lots of other states, filed an action. Uh, they specifically filed it in uh, the district court in the Northern District of Texas in a small town where uh, Judge O'Connor sits a few days a month. Uh, this is forum shopping with a vengeance. Sure. Uh, and it's, it's done all the time uh, by conservative uh, litigation groups and uh, public officials who want to challenge federal action. Uh, so O'Connor got this challenge uh, to the Affordable Care Act. It's the newest challenge of many. Uh, people will remember that years ago, uh, the Supreme Court upheld the Affordable Care Act more than once. Uh, but the theory under which they upheld its constitutionality was that Congress, under its taxing power, has the right to impose obligations on people and to tax them if they don't fulfill them. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and the way the individual mandate works under the Affordable Care Act, uh, this is not the mandate that employers provide insurance. This is the mandate that individuals who don't get insurance through their employers have to purchase insurance uh, depending on their income level uh, on an exchange, either or a state exchange a penalty, or a federal right. exchange, or they face the penalty, which was administered by the IRS as part of collecting their income taxes. Uh, and so, good news this year. If we're still shut down, there's no IRS. <laughs> well, and and but but the, what's what triggered this case? What triggered this case is that as part of his big, beautiful tax cut bill, yeah, uh, enacted uh, in 2017, what uh, President Trump and Congress managed to do was to dial down the individual mandate tax penalty to zero. Mm. They didn't repeal it. The penalty provision is still there, but the amount owed is zero. Wow. So in effect, it was repealed, if not in actuality. It's a de facto, as opposed to a de jure repeal of the tax. Wow. All right. So now the plaintiffs in this case argued because the tax is gone, the constitutional basis for the mandate is gone. And with the individual mandate being gone, the whole statutory scheme falls apart. Yeah. Because the individual mandate, uh, as the legislative history and even the uh, congressional findings in the statute make clear, the individual mandate is the key, the keystone to the whole thing. So one of the functions of the penalty attached to the individual mandate was to generate revenue for the federal government to help fund the costs of Obamacare. And another was to expand the pool so that insurance companies would be collecting premiums from people who weren't going to be filing many claims because they were young and healthy, uh, and that would ex- uh, increase the amount of money. So you knock out the individual mandate, and the whole scheme falls apart. Mm-hmm. That was the argument of the plaintiffs, and O'Connor bought it hook, line, and sinker. He, he said, it's, it seems clear to me that by dialing down the penalty to zero, they have de facto repealed it, which means if there is no tax anymore, the tax basis found by the Supreme Court for upholding the, the individual mandate is gone. If the individual mandate is gone, the whole statute falls apart. And the argument uh, that intervening states made, because the Trump administration is not defending Obamacare in this case, mm. so it was intervening states, attorney generals from New York, California, other places, intervened to defend Obamacare. Uh, they argued, no, you can sever the mandate from the other provisions. And O'Connor said, no, as a, as a practical and legal matter, you can't sever the mandate because the other provisions have no funding without the mandate. Mm. You, you don't have the prod to expand the pool mm-hmm. to healthy people, right. and you don't have the revenue to help pay for the federal uh, costs of, of Obamacare, for the Medicaid expansion, et cetera. So he said it just falls apart. However... He didn't do his favorite stunt at the end of the case. His favorite stunt is to issue a nationwide injunction. He didn't. He said, you know, I'm I'm leery of issuing a nationwide injunction here because uh, he issued this opinion on the last day that people could sign up for 2019 coverage. And he said, you know, millions of people have signed up for 2019 coverage and I'm going to strike down this law. What's going to happen is going to be chaos. He said, I am willing to stay the effect of my ruling. And he subsequently issued a, a, uh, a little memorandum making this clear. He's staying the effect of his ruling. And he's also entering a judgment so that the interveners can appeal immediately. Yeah. 
Uh, so the interveners are going to file their appeal to the Fifth the Circuit, circuit. Oh. which is not the greatest circuit to be in for this oh. kind of stuff. But that uh, eventually this will end up before the Supreme Court, unless the Fifth Circuit reverses him. Okay. Uh, in which case, Texas will appeal, but the Supreme Court can duck it if they want to. But uh, as the Supreme Court gets more conservative with each new appointment by Trump, uh, the other thing to mention is everyone, you know, uh, your prayers for Justice Ginsburg. Uh, she, for the first time in over a quarter century on the court, she has missed oral arguments. Isn't that incredible, week. though? It is. It's One incredible. But she, she's so durable, and she's, she's had several cancer treatments. She's yeah. had all kinds of medical stuff. But somehow she manages to find her way back to that courthouse for the oral arguments. Yeah. We have no idea whether she's participating in the conference today. If she is, it would be by phone or Skype or something like that. Wow. Because she did not sit in the courthouse this week. They had three days of arguments. I see. Uh, the court did announce that she plans to participate in those cases by reviewing the transcripts and the briefs. Yeah. And probably she could probably listen to the recordings if she wants to, but it's faster to look at the transcripts. Sure. Uh, so she'll be participating in those cases. And we know that you don't have to ask questions during oral argument right. to have an opinion because right. Thomas, because never Thomas does. votes without asking questions, right? <laughs> One uh, time. I but think. but also to mention, and uh, this is the sad thing, I saw that there were at least some news reports that the White House staff is getting busy putting together a list of names. I saw that this morning. Yeah. But don't you think they just do, they that, do that to scare us and rev yeah. up the base at a time that well, they they want to be off. ready to nominate someone immediately if she retires. I think they want to be. They want to get someone in there as fast as possible. They don't want an eight-member court, although an eight-member court would be five-three their favor much of the time, unless Roberts uh, moderates his views on a lot of stuff. Yeah. So, at any rate, why is this so important? This Obamacare opinion. Well, I would just mention, as I do in my coverage of this in the January issue of Law Notes, a whole bunch of important federal district court opinions issued over the past year on transgender health care issues under Obamacare. Right. Uh, and specifically some cases involving the state of Wisconsin. Uh, we've had a federal district judge order the state's Medicaid program and the state's program uh, of health insurance for state employees to cover gender reassignment procedures, which the state was refusing to do. Mm -hmm. And they said uh, part of it was an equal protection ruling, but part of it was based on uh, the sex discrimination provision in Obamacare. 1557. Yeah. So uh, we have several opinions, not just from the Western District of Wisconsin. They were also citing uh, cases from California, Minnesota, uh, yeah, Minnesota and California. There were also uh, district court decisions. So losing the sex discrimination provision right. from Obamacare would be a big loss. Oh, sure. Uh, I mean, in addition more, to losing more Obamacare. Yeah, probably more be. for transgender people. But, you know, we're, we're talking about because in order for coverage to satisfy the requirements of Obamacare that everyone, to the extent possible, have insurance, uh, Obamacare spelled out minimum standards that had to be met yeah. by insurance policies. And one of the things is that they may not discriminate based on sex in the provision mm -hmm. of care. And that has proven very helpful to transgender people when you put together the transgender coverage developments under Title VII and under Title IX and under some other federal statutes, the Fair Housing Act, for example, we now have a growing body of law saying that discrimination against people because of their gender identity violates laws banning sex discrimination. Sure. So there are some states that have laws banning sex discrimination by insurance companies, but not all of them. Mm -hmm. 
and they haven't necessarily received this interpretation yet. Got it. Uh, so this has been very important, and uh, it's if Obamacare disappears, uh, we need to push hard in Congress for something in its place banning uh, discrimination. Uh, but of course, we need. That's, so if this case takes our, forever to get up to the Supreme Court, in the and we have a Democratic administration that ticks up the uh, charge for the for failing to buy insurance, right. wouldn't that make this all moot? If if the uh, if the tax penalty is reinstated, yeah, that would moot. Judge O'Connor's decision. So do we just keep playing ping pong with this? Well, it's Every possible. time we get a Republican administration, well, they, we get rid they, of the they, tax they, and it's unconstitutional. They, let's save that for another day. All right, so let's move on. Okay, we are back. We are on the verge here in New York of some major legislative victories for LGBT people. As early as next week, the New York State Legislature is expected to debate and pass a bill that would codify in state law protections for transgender people and another bill that would ban conversion therapy. Fourteen states ban this barbaric practice. Pennsylvania is not one of them, but we do have a case out of Pennsylvania involving a high school student who brought an emotional distress claim against his high school for subjecting him to anti-gay animus and conversion therapy. Art, let's talk about this case. Okay, this is the case of Adam Dobson. And uh, Dobson was a student at the Milton Hershey School. The Milton Hershey School was founded in 1909. Doesn't that make your mouth water? I just think about chocolate. Well, Milton Hershey and his wife, Kitty, uh, they were unable to have children, so they decided to use their considerable wealth to create a boarding school for orphan boys. And uh, Adam Dobbs was admitted uh, to Milton. It's now co-educational. It was originally a boys' school. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's one of the wealthiest boarding schools in the U.S. because of the endowment from the Hershey Foundation. Yeah. Uh, So it's tuition-free. Wow. It's it's for poor kids, lower-income background, we're told. Uh, But it is a very... Well, there's an air of religiosity about it because that was the Hershey's. And so education is styled in the Judeo-Christian faith of the founders with daily devotions and Sunday chapel services. Wow. All right. So Adam Dobson was enrolled in the school. His guardian enrolled him. Uh, he was an orphan, so he had a guardian rather than parents. And uh, the guardian executed an enrollment agreement, a three-page document setting forth terms and conditions of enrollment, attendance, conduct, discipline, etc. Uh, and when he was in the ninth grade, Adam realized that he was gay. And at some point that year, a house parent, because this is a boarding school, so they have house parents, a house parent caught him viewing gay pornography on a resident's computer. Mistake, Adam. Mm. And he was forced to watch a religious-based video intended to cure him of being gay. Wow. In other words, they did their own homemade conversion therapy there. Uh, in the 11th grade, he experienced suicidal ideation as he was trying to repress his sexual orientation. And uh, the, the health services of the school intervened, and they sent him to a local mental and behavioral health care facility. Uh, we're not given all the details and the opinion on what kind of a facility this was. Okay. But at any rate, he improved for a short time. He returned to school. But then he suffered another bout of depression. Uh, this time he tried to kill himself. Uh, he self-reported the incident to the school and he begged for help. The school psychologist recommended inpatient treatment again, send him uh, again 
uh, to a facility for inpatient treatment. So they sent him, and while he was there, they expelled him and evicted him from My his God. on-campus home. This case is just heartbreaking, but continue. Yeah. Uh, they explained that he was expelled because he was, quote, a liability to the school. My God. Uh, so he sued Milton in 2016. In his first amended complaint, he pled 13 causes of action, including state law tort claims for negligent breach of a duty of care, negligent misrepresentation, intentional misrepresentation, intentional and negligent infliction of emotional distress, civil conspiracy, uh, all kinds of just loaded it up. Uh, and uh, the Good. school. Throw everything at them. Well, the school filed a motion to dismiss citing something called the gist of the action doctrine. Okay. They said his suit is really a breach of contract suit, which he didn't claim in his complaint. And the uh, district judge uh, said under the gist of the action uh, doctrine, a party cannot assert a tort claim against another party to a contract when the gravamen of the claim is an actuality breach of contract. Uh, and when distinguishing between tort and breach of contract claims at the motion to dismiss stage, said the judge, the determinative factor is the nature of the duty alleged to have been breached as pleaded by the plaintiff. If the duty is created by the terms of the party's agreement, then the claim sounds a breach of contract. So, <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> do you know what this is? This is like going back to the 1840s and saying, you pled the wrong cause of action, common okay. law pleading, you know. Yeah. We throw you out of court. That's the only thing I get from that. Well, what does all that other text well, mean? Well, uh, <laughs> well, Adam came back with a uh, motion to file a second amended complaint to add breach of contract claim mm. and an unfair trade practice claim. And the court said, look, this motion gives us an opportunity to revisit our previous dismissal of Dobson state law tort claims. And upon reconsideration, we believe the decision was legally incorrect and wow. that justice requires rectification. Oh so my this God. is a judge who woke up and changed yeah. his mind. Uh, judge uh, Connor is his name. Uh, he woke up, he changed his mind. He said... Uh, he, he wrote that Dobson's negligence, emotional distress, misrepresentation, civil conspiracy, and fiduciary duty claims implicated, quote, broader social duties owed by Milton to its students and were not, in fact, barred by the gist of the action doctrine. Wow. And in assessing the claims, he said, especially the claim of negligent infliction of emotional distress, he said that could stand based both on the expulsion and subjecting him to conversion therapy mm -hmm. because of this same duty of care that the school owes to him as a matter of law uh, because it's a residential program. They're acting in local parentis. They have duties of care, etc. Uh, wow. Now, the court did dismiss the intentional infliction of emotional claim, emotional distress claim, without prejudice because... Uh, as the school argued, the alleged physical manifestations of the emotional harm pleaded by Dobson were only conclusory, that he has to amend now, because this is dismissed without prejudice, he can amend and refile with more facts about uh, yeah, you know, his, his sure the emotional complications. Indeed. Uh, the court's discussion of the outrageousness prong, because remember, for intentional uh, infliction of emotional distress, the plaintiff has to allege outrageous conduct yeah. by the defendant. Uh, he, he said, uh, an adequately pled intentional emotional uh, infliction of emotional distress claim could survive a future challenge, which is why he dismissed without prejudice. And he characterized the attempted conversion therapy as satisfying the outrageous yeah. prong 
necessary to state an IIED claim. So we now have a federal district judge saying, uh, and uh, this is a matter of tort law, Pennsylvania tort law, but it's a federal judge, so it's not a binding precedent, but it's useful. It's yeah. going to be a published decision uh, that uh, imposing conversion therapy on somebody, especially a minor in this case, is outrageous. Yeah. Outrageous. That's a useful this, precedent. To this have. case strikes me as very interesting for a number of reasons. Number one, as you mentioned, this um, moment where the judge, you know, had a change of heart and mind. Um, you know, maybe he saw a boy erased. I don't know. Yes. Um, but the other thing that strikes me as so important is. You know, this is a state without a conversion therapy ban. Most of the states that do ban conversion therapy do it on some premise of either the um, organization is advertising or charging, and you can do it based on fraud. And or you're going like after someone who has a professional license, and you can make licensing an issue. right. So if it's a religious organization and they're not really advertising and they're just doing it, um, it's hard to reach in and grab them. Um, without violating First Amendment principles. And so this looks like a, an opportunity to really, you know, if, if organizations and schools are facing real threat of financial liability um, from these type of claims, uh, at least it will maybe make them sit up and not... One hopes so. I, I think it's, it's likely that uh, the... Uh Hershey School will try to appeal this to the Third Circuit, so you know we'll see what happens with this. But at this point in the litigation, it's interesting to have a federal judge on record as saying subjecting someone to conversion therapy is outrageous. Is outrageous. That's incredible. All right, let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll do the of note segment. All right, and we're back with the of note segment. Art, what do you got? What I've got? Uh, well, a recurring issue. Uh, and uh, we're seeing it more and more frequently now in our prisoner litigation coverage, uh, is transgender prisoners suing for the right uh, to transition in prison as prisoners. And uh, they're beginning to have some success uh, in in challenging across-the-board policies by state uh, penal uh, departments, correction departments, saying absolutely not, we will not... Uh, at state expense, give someone a sex change operation. Uh, so this is a case uh, that we report in the January issue, Edmo against Idaho Department of Corrections, a uh, decision by Federal District Judge Barry Lynn Windmill issued on December 13th. Uh, Judge Windmill ordered the Idaho Department of Corrections to provide transgender inmate Andre Edmo with, quote, adequate medical care, including gender confirmation surgery. Wow, great. And uh, our specialist in reporting on these cases, Bill Rold, comments uh, in his lead paragraph that this opinion is essential reading for transgender prisoner advocates, that the judge really lays out an awful lot of factual information and analysis and findings uh, as to medically necessary treatment. Uh, the We can't get into lots of detail because this is just our short of note segment. But uh, people should look for it in the January issue of Law Notes and should be aware that since the January issue of Law Notes went to press, which was earlier this week and it will be distributed shortly, uh, we have heard that uh, an appeal is being taken by the state. I see. From this decision, which is not surprising. Right. Um, But we also know that Idaho sits in the Ninth Circuit. Right. 
And we know that Trump is doing his best to remake the Ninth Circuit, but it's going to take some time. It's going to take some time. Well, that's all that we have time for today. Thank you so much, Art. Um, It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, listeners, for listening. This and future podcasts can be found on iTunes and at legal.podbean.com. Follow us at Legal on on Twitter at LGBT Bar NY and like us on Facebook. We will be back with another episode of the Legal LGBT Law Notes podcast in February. 